Indeed. I hope you're not. That is The Smiths, just for a change, and the track Rubber Ring from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall. It's true. And this is The C86 Show. (laughs) 
Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, as always, crossing time, space and genre. And as you know, if you've been following the show, hopefully you have, um, I like a special guest. This week it is the turn of Juliana Hatfield, because I caught up with, caught up with her a few, probably months ago now, um, to find out about life, love and poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that I'm going to bring you alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. Plus, also, um, some songs, tracks from her new album that's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks' time, time, titled Weird. So, prepare to be impressed. But, to kick off the show, I think we'll start with your favourite of mine. This is My Sister. Such a good 
And that was Juliana Hatfield in the track titled My Sister that came from her, I think it was 1992 album, Become What You Are. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is going to be Juliana Hatfield because I caught up with her a few weeks, months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff. And also she has an album that is going to be coming out in probably about a week or two Two's time titled Weird and in May she's got I think six or seven live dates in the UK which I can give you those as well as we progress through the show but um, because we're all feeling very sort of well we're channeling the spirit of Juliana Hatfield I think we should play something that she appeared on with the Lemonheads many decades ago this is My Drug Buddy Indeed, we love that song. That was The Lemonheads with a track titled My Drug Buddy. That was taken from their album It's a Shame About Ray and on backing vocals and bass was Juliana Hatfield. Yes, interesting fact. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, if you want to contact me. We always love your messages. You can do it via 
Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86show. I will be there. And if you want to find out um, or find the archives of this show, you can via um, Spotify, iTunes and on Mixcloud. Just go to C86show. They're all there. But anyway, this week's special guest, Juliana Hatfield. This is the interview I did a couple of months ago where we were talking about the new album that was going to be coming out, which is now going to be in a week's time titled Weird. And also she's got some live dates in May. But uh, this is the beginning of the interview where we were talking about the creative process. And this was Julianne's, Juliana, Juliana's answer. Juliana, well, take it away. It's really what it's the main focus of my um, my life, I guess. You know, I've, I've always been very, um, I've always, I've, I've lived alone most of the time. And so I don't, I don't have a family, you know, I don't have, <clears throat> I don't have a spouse or children. So I have plenty of time with which to work on my stuff. And so it's just what I, it's just what I do. That's my focus. It's making making music and things like that and so um yes. that's what I do. And um obviously you got a new album out in the new year called um Weird, isn't it? That's the one because it's, yeah. and that's just so. And the year and before that, you did a, comp, a kind of collection of um, Olivia Newton John tracks as well. So was that quite a nice thing to do? A, a kind of a, a sort of a, an artistic kind of, I don't know, going into a different, slightly world just to sort of have some fun. Because I remember a few. Well, actually, now it's decades. There was Sonic Youth and people like you know the Cranberries did a whole album of um, the Carpenters material and which I always thought they did a fantastic job doing that and um, and did great respect to it because I thought the Carpenters were amazing um, and so I just wondered if that was also a passion of yours you know going back and doing Olivia Newton-John. Yes definitely it was it was kind of a, a self-indulgence but uh, there's no there was no reason for me not to do it you know I, at this point I, I have total freedom to do whatever I want and I don't have um, people weighing in on if anything's a good idea or a bad idea, so I can indulge every whim. And when, when the idea popped into my head, um, make, an, make an album of all Olivia Newton-John songs, I just I just kind of went for it. And I dived right in, and it, it was kind of a, uh, I guess it was a fantasy of mine to do that, and, I, and it was really exciting and yes. fulfilling. And there's one there's one track that she does which I think is absolutely gorgeous and I've always loved it and it was you know I put it on and that's the Bob Dylan one if not for you which oh, yeah. which it was yeah. just one of those ones and I know George Harrison also covered it and and has that beautiful kind of little I don't know rift in it did and that didn't make it to the album was that any kind no. of so Sorry, I just, I, no, I just yeah. wondered if, if there was um, if there was a kind of either that was one of the songs you didn't like or whether it was kind of a difficult one to cover because it was written by Bob Dylan. Yeah, I think that my I wanted to I didn't want to do it because it was a Bob Dylan song because it was it would have been a cover of a cover. You know, oh, I wanted yes, to do yeah. I wanted to focus on songs that Olivia Newton-John had made famous herself first. Yes. You know what I mean? I came right out of a an upbringing um, which was saturated with all that stuff, like over here, the AM, AM pop radio, it was all that stuff like the Carpenters and, and um, yeah, like Burt Backrack and all that great stuff. And, and so it was like you, it was really part, I, I feel like it's really part of, um, part of me. It's so in, 
I grew up with it, and it was just became part of what what I was, all that stuff. And so when I started writing songs, I think some of that influence came out of me like it did the Smiths and other people like that. And and all that stuff you were mentioning, like like Carp- the Carpenters and Bert Backrack, all, all the songwriting is pretty, a lot of it's pretty sophisticated. And when I and the same is true for a lot of Olivia Newton-John songs. When when I was learning the songs, I was realizing like, wow, this stuff is really challenging. It's deceptively simple. When when you try to play it and sing it yourself, you realize, like, wow, this is like really, um, really great songwriting. Yes. Well, I, I sort of have friends who, you know, were in bands. You know, mostly you know just quite small bands. But when they try to do a cover. They sort of really did avoid Burt Backrack songs or The Carpenters because yeah. they suddenly went, oh, actually, that is just so complicated. The timing, you know, let's stick to the Beatles or the, the Stones. <laughs> so, yes. And the, and the arrangements also. It's like you can't just... I, 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 I was kind of trying to figure out if I could take the Olivia Newton-John stuff on the road and it would have required a, a lot of people on stage to do it justice. So I, I did not tour because of it because it was just like... I couldn't do it with a really stripped down band. I don't. I didn't think it would work. Yes, <clears throat> and just going back because that's <clears throat> one of my favourite decades. Even though I had a love hate relationship with it, the eighties when you began the your sort of musical adventure. And this was with the Blake Babies. Was were you sort of had you been sort of part of a kind of that kind of. In the UK, you know, it was very much an indie, you know, we were part of the indie world and there was like the mainstream, which was all kind of Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet and that Trevor Horn production that was on ABC yeah. and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Or you were yeah. flailing around with, you know, with the love of Morrissey and and people like Billy Bragg and I suppose, uh, yeah, you know, R.E.M. And, and sort of all those kind of college bands. It was kind of easier... It, it was easy to be in either one group or the other. I just wondered where your sort of musical kind of uh, background was during those periods. Well, I was more on the indie rock side over here. We, yeah, we called it, they called it college rock, like, um, cause, because it was being played on college radio stations. Um, it was more like the raw stuff, like REM, I, I, REM's first, EP and album were hugely important to me and stuff like The Replacements and a band called X from LA. And so for me I was I was more connected to music like that kind of raw scrappy guitar stuff, but you know I, I felt like the the big 80s pop production um rate was more a little bit alienating to me in terms of the just the sonic um the sonic grandiosity of a lot of it but you know like Frankie goes to Hollywood and all that stuff but I love I did love all that stuff you know like Duran Duran Culture Club whatever all that stuff was happening I loved it all but I didn't feel like I really related to it aesthetically so much as I did like early Aryan. And that's the first part of my interview with Juliana Hatfield. And as I said, she's got some live dates that are going to be in May. She'll be touring in the UK and I do believe possibly, yes, over in Europe as well. So uh, do check out her website. And as I also mentioned, she has an album coming out in, I think, the 18th of January titled Weird. And this is going to be a track taken from it. And this is the opening song titled Stayin' In.
staying in. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the second part of my interview with Juliana, where I um, was talking about those early years of forming music, being in bands, and especially the Blake Babies. And this was her reply. Take it away. Well, I, I was just so happy and grateful to meet them because they saved me from... Um, I, I, I was so pathologically shy and um, that that I I didn't know how I was going to make music because I, I wanted to be in a band but I didn't know how to talk to people so they we were all at this music school in Boston Berkeley College of Music and they they just introduced themselves to me and they asked me if I wanted to sing in their band and that was just like um, that was my dream come true and so we went and we just started jamming on uh, Velvet Underground songs, and that was how that was how it came together. They, we just all had similar ideas that we wanted to make this scrappy kind of melodic rock, and and um, we just kind of had we we just connect we clicked really um, easily. You know, because you went on to be part of the Lemonheads, and that kind of, in a way, I don't know about luck, but you, you know, that was certainly part of a scene that was kind of happening, wasn't it? I, well, I think so, but I, I don't think that anything I or the Lemonheads did really um, fit into any genre. Maybe because I was in the middle of it. I don't think that. I mean, there were grungy aspects of what we were doing, but there were also really pop. Um, parts of it and also um, mainstream aspects but I, I don't I don't know that I really ever fit into any particular category although other people probably have different ideas than I do about that um, but I because I, I liked I loved all kinds of music and I I don't think I, and Boston was unique because there wasn't really a Boston sound like there was maybe a Manchester sound. Boston had a lot of eclectic sounds coming out of it, like you had throwing muses, dinosaur, junior, um, just like stuff that was was um, weird and not really fitting into any um, any real sonic scene. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because the one thing I'm not sure if you find this, but because I suppose we, as you know, this is a huge sweeping statement, you know, in the UK, you know, we'd love to sort of find in obscure bands on the other side of the world. So anything from America, you know, gets a little bit more like, wow, that's brilliant, you know. So anything that's ever been touched by people like Steve Albini or is it Billy Kramer, who also produced stuff as well? Mm-hmm. You know, th- those kind of anything that's slightly obscure and you've got to find yeah, um, mm-hmm. seems to have a sort of an added kudos to it and, and excitement so I can see that you know for us indie kids you know like wanting to okay we you know bleach and then never mind sort of have a huge influence on us in in the UK but then wanting to sort of get as many obscure bands that nobody else hopefully knew was kind of also important but then you realize that also thousands of other people were doing the same musical discoveries really so obviously yes the Lemonheads would have you know, fit, kind of fitted in quite nicely for us people who wanted to add to our Sonic Youth and Butthole Surface collection. But with, but if you think about it, the Lemonheads, Sonic Youth, and Butthole Surfers all sound really different. I think, and I think that um, also 
the UK was much more more concentrated, and I think that the the way that you guys over there looked at music was different than the way we did over here because it's such a big this my country's so so big and it's so diffuse and there's all these different regions and and nothing as con- like there was not such a concentrated music press so we weren't all hanging on uh, what was new as much it was all just sort of a little bit bit more laid back here i think yes there wasn't true. as much hype nothing things weren't as hyped here I don't think, because they were over there. I know. We were t- we're so tiny in this country. It's kind of, it's always boggling how small it is when we, when you ever visit America, you think, my God, you know, you could fit Britain into your back pocket, basically. So then, fast forward to just a couple of years, then you did your first solo album. So how did that sort of feel after being part of the band, you know, the Blake Babies and then the Lemonheads, and then you stepped out? Was that a kind of a big moment for you? Um, it was, but it was, um, it was, yeah, we, I guess Blake Babies did do about, we did do about five years, I guess, and then we broke up, and I was really terrified to be on my own, actually, very scared and, and freaked out, I didn't know if I could handle it on my own, so I just got a bunch of friends to play on the album, and my friend produced it, and um yeah it was it was it was hard becoming a solo artist i I wasn't really i didn't know if i was suited for it and i missed having my band around but i it just it was a process it's been a long process getting comfortable as a solo artist and that's the second part of my interview with juliana hatfield talking about life love poetry and also going solo on the album front anyway um i've still got quite a bit of that interview but i thought we should um, break it up with a bit more music this is um a track that was taken from her 2018 album juliana hatfield sings olivia newton john and yes this is going to be let's get physical
Oh, weird feedback. There you go. Juliana Hatfield sings Olivia Newton-John. Well, that was the title of the, uh, the album that came out last year, and that was Let's Get Physical. And uh, I do believe that um, there was some sort of arrangement. Every album sold, there was like $1 donated to a um, cancer research trust charity. Anyway, you'll have to check that out. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the third part of my interview with Juliana Hatfield, where I was talking about the um, David Bowie, as always, and uh, his prolific period during the 70s when he released something like nine albums, relocated twice, and also produced various other people's work. I always love to talk about David Bowie. And um, <clears throat> I sort of mentioned this to Juliana and talked about her sort of prolific period during the 90s and had, how she managed to sort of keep that kind of creativity creativity going. And this was her answer. Take it away. Well, I never, I, I never really cared about commercial success. And I think that was what enabled me to just keep plowing forward with the writing and the recording because I was not trying to make anyone happy. I wasn't trying to please a committee. I was just doing my thing. Um, and I just kept on doing my thing. And, um, that's why I just have this, I, I wasn't worried about, I wasn't really worried about commercial success. And I, that, I guess that's my answer. Yes. That's how I, I kept on. And I, and I would, I just had a lot of ideas and all I cared about was getting my ideas out and recorded. And I guess Bowie, I, I, I don't want to compare myself to Bowie, except for the fact that I think we both had a lot of ideas and we wanted to um, manifest those ideas because just to satisfy our own, our own urges. Because yeah. the one, the other thing that sort of trips people up and and sort of I hadn't appreciated was the the world of publishing and sort of admin and 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 ownership of music. How did you manage to navigate that one yourself? Well, I had um, you just sort of have to. I had, well, Blake Baby signed to an um, an indie label, and then you start talking to people about these things. You know, we had a lawyer. You just people start to. You start to gather people around you, and you decide who you can trust and who you can't trust, and and so you have people, good, smart people advising you, hopefully, and then you eventually just kind of offers are made. And then I, after the indie label, I, I was they sold me to, um, they they sold my contract to Atlantic Records, and which, but I was glad to go there because I liked the guy who was running the company at the time, this guy Danny Goldberg. And, um, so yeah, people just, just were, um, it comes when you get signed to a major label, then, you know, you start talking to publishers and, and it all kind of goes together. Yes, because I so recently did an interview with Dave Wakelin from The Beat. I think there's several of them. There's two beats, but they're the same band, but they just fell out. So there's the English beat and the other beat, I think, something mm -hmm. like that. But he's been uh, working on a new album, which has been funded, you know, pledge, pledge funded. And uh -huh. he was saying that he feels much more responsibility because he realizes it's kind of been funded by, you know, the fans and he and yeah. rather than the record label. And obviously you've used um, pledge, pledge funded as well to release albums. So how does that yeah. process feel? Well, it is it is a little bit unnerving just because you you know that you have all these people um, um, 
paying attention to the process of the of the album being made and it is it's weird it's definitely it makes it made me feel like i had an obligation to deliver you know i want i wanted to deliver a quality piece of music to these people in a way that i never had to worry about when i was when i was making records before for uh you know, when a label was funding him, I just felt like I could do whatever I wanted because the label was never pressuring me. They just let me do my thing. And so I did whatever I wanted. But yeah, when you're being funded by the people, I, I think just you want to you wanna deliver something that's good and not crappy. So that, I guess it kept me on my toes in a good, in a good way. It kept me, I was, you know, I wanted um, good good quality i didn't want to just give something half-assed to the people who were funding it yeah but it's just a whole other it's weird though i have really mixed feelings about crowdfunding it's it definitely puts more of a weird kind of um pressure and i i i don't know if i like that feeling or not but um it did it it's definitely saved my ass a couple times having having the people fund yes stuff Indeed, the tricky world that is pledge funding. Anyway, that was the second or third part of my interview with Juliana Hatfield. Um, still more to come, but I thought we should break it up with a bit more music and um, still going back to that album which came out in the early 90s, Become What You Are. This is Spin the Bottle, which also appeared in the 1994 film Reality Bites. I know, it's a classic.
That's a track titled Spin the Bottle that came from the Juliana Hatfield album Become What You Are. And if you want to know the dates of her tour in the UK this coming May, they're going to start on the 20th at Brighton and then from there it's the 21st is in London, 22nd Bristol, 23rd Nottingham. It goes right through the 26th, which is Birmingham. But don't forget there's Glasgow and Manchester in there as well. But if you go to her website, there's all the information there and much, much more. Anyway, this is going to be the next part of my interview with her where we were talking about the uh, process of both crowdfunding and also the new album that's coming out at the uh, sort of middle to end of January. This be entitled uh, Weird. And this was her reply. Juliana, take it away. For the past few albums, few years, I've been working with this small label of a Connecticut label called American Laundromat Records. And we have a really good um, working relationship because he just kind of... Uh, um, he can move fast. Like, I like to move fast. Like, I love to... My, my thing now is I want to put out two albums a year, and, and we're on um, schedule to do that this year with with the Olivia Newton-John record from last April, and now Weird. Actually, Weird isn't officially going to be out until 2019, but it's within a 12-month period that I have two albums out. Yes. So it's a good, that's a good... Um, that's a good working partnership right now for me. Fantastic. And actually, it was kind of frighteningly, it was nearly 10 years ago, when you brought out or published and wrote a book, um, When I Grow Up, a memoir. How did that feel, sort of putting that together? Because I'd spoke to dear old Woody Woodmansey from um, David Bowie's Spiders for Mars, and he was sort of saying that the process had been quite therapeutic, but also sometimes quite difficult to engage in certain parts of his kind of what had happened in his life. So how did, because obviously, yes, yes, um, and sort of having to sort of delve back and, and to sort of bring this all up must have sometimes mixed emotional moments. Well, I I really was mostly interested in the process of writing a book. I I, I just wanted to see if it could be done by me. I wanted to I wanted to try and write a book and complete a book and so for me it was like an experiment in getting the job done and and initially it was just going to be a tour diary and so when I um hooked up with this publishing house they they suggested that I start adding in um memories from my from my career, you know, in my musical life, adding those bits in. And so for me, that was a little bit, it was complicated just to go and write about stuff that I didn't necessarily want to remember. Um, but they, they didn't want the book without that stuff. So it was, it, it was, it was hard to go back and write about stuff. And now I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I sort of, talked about some of the things I did but it's done and I I completed the book and I'm just glad that I did it it was a very interesting process it was difficult it was really, it took a lot of time and a lot of um a lot of editing and more yeah I wrote way more than I needed I had to <laughs> cut a whole bunch of it Yes, it must have been quite um, bizarre. And obviously in the last few years you've sort of worked with various other people, including the, the great Paul Westenberg, who was in The Replacements. But I have to say, I think his solo albums are fantastic. Uh, what was that process like? Well, I've known him for a long time, so 
um, it was, it was, um, well, on one hand, it was, I was such a huge fan of the replacements when I was in, when I was a lot younger, so there's that whole, like, thing, like, when I would, you know, I'd be in his basement studio with him, and I'd just stop and think for a second, like, I'm in the basement with my childhood idol, this is so crazy, how cool is this, it was really cool just from a, just as an idea, but, um, you know, but I'd known him a long time now, and so it was like, the process was like, um, he, I was kind of curating the song, he has so many songs recorded, songs that people have not heard, and so I was, the process was like me listening to a lot of his demos, and me saying like, that's a great song, we should do that song, and, and so I was kind of pick, plucking songs out of his collection of unreleased songs, and then we would work on them, and, and then we wrote a few of them together, and it was just, like, pretty um, interesting, I guess. And that was me in conversation with Juliana Hatfield. I've still got a bit more of that interview to go, but I thought we should break it up with another track. This is going to be taken from the new album that is going to be coming out mid-January, end of January. The album is titled Weird, and this is a Lost Ship.
And that's a, another track taken from Juliana Hatfield's album. The track is titled Lost Ship, and that was the album which is coming out in a couple of weeks' time called Weird. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can go via Facebook, Twitter, go to at C86Show, um, and all the shows have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud. So there you go. Just go there. But anyway, this is the next part of my interview with Juliana, where she had to just go off and find a package from FedEx because it had just been delivered. And then she wanted to read a bit from a David Lynch book. And this was the bit that she quoted to me. Take it away, Juliana. I don't know how I got to that thing of not caring what other people think, but it's a good thing. The thing is, you fall in love with ideas, and it's like falling in love with a girl. It could, it could be a girl you wouldn't want to bring home to your parents, but you don't care what anybody else thinks. You're in love, and it's beautiful, and you stay true to those things. There's this Vedic line that goes, quote, Man has control of action alone, never the fruit of that action, unquote. In other words, you do the best you can, and how the thing goes into the world, you can't control that. It's lucky when it goes good, and it's gone, and it's gone good for me, and it's horrible when it goes bad, and it's gone bad for me. Everybody's had those experiences, but so what? You die two deaths if you sold out and not done what you were supposed to do. And that was Dune, his movie Dune. You die once because you sold out, and you die twice because it was a failure. Fire Walk With Me didn't do anything out in the world, but I only died one time with that picture because I felt good about it. You can live with yourself perfectly fine if you stay true to what you love. And so that kind of answers the question for me. Like, if I, if I do... If I make music that I am proud of, it's kind of all all that I need at this point. I don't need anything else but that. Yes. And it was interesting because I, I remember when Brian Eno was saying, you know, him and David Bowie were working in the late 70s and, you know, there was a sort of, what do we do and, and where should we go with this? And he, he freed Bowie up a lot by saying, look, whatever we do, no one's going to die. You know, it doesn't really... And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's as if <laughs> to say, look, it really doesn't matter. Let's... Let's just really go for it. Let's just do something completely out there. And I think at the time, you know, that going to Berlin and then sort of working with different people and having, you know, a Brian Eno just to say, you know, we are, you know, it's it's fine. Whatever we produce, it's going to be okay. And obviously, a lot of the journalists at the time hated it, but now obviously they pretend they loved it. But it was, yeah, it was like people. Yes, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you know, it just kind it of highlighted that it is worth just doing what you do because even though it was probably a commercial suicide for him at the time, he realises yeah. that he loved doing it and that's the album that everyone pretends they love <laughs> most of all of David Bowie's stuff. So you think, oh, that's Yeah, and it's like people, people hated, a lot of people hated Eraserhead or didn't understand it and a lot of people hated Blue Velvet, but people eventually, you know, Come, they came around and they recognized it for um, recognized its value. And I think that if if you're an artistic-minded person, you have to just you know you, you have to follow your instincts. And sometimes people are going to criticize what you've done, but I think it doesn't. You can't listen. You have to just keep doing what you're doing, and someone will like it. If you like it, someone else will like it. If you, the artist, likes it, there's got to be other people who are going to like it too. Excellent and wise advice. And that 
is the last part of my interview with Juliana Hatfield talking about the creative process. And that, dear listener, is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. Um, and like I said, do get in touch if you so wish to. But uh, tune in next week because I've got a lot of special guests that a bit of a backlog. But a big thank you to Juliana for giving me that. I'm going to leave you with one more track. This is a... Um, Chord or titled Universal Heartbeat taken from the album Only Everything. But before we hear that, I'll leave you with the last, very last bit of the interview where I asked her what she would say to her 18-year-old self. And this is her reply. Juliana, give us the wisdom. I would, I would just tell myself, stop worrying. Like, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. It doesn't matter if you... If you don't, you know, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. It's not going to matter if you say no. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. Stop worrying. (laughs) 